Hello, Cleveland Cavalier fans. It is Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cav fan and host of this podcast, Fear the Fro. Listen, this is going to be a little bit unconventional in terms of how I typically podcast. I like to react to the action on the court. Um, I also talk about, obviously, all the stuff that's going on. And this is one of those podcasts where I feel like it's better to lead with the stuff that I'm the most emotional about. Two wins has me feeling good. We're going to get into all the game action. But first... I'll hit the open, and then I want to come back and discuss Donovan Mitchell and all the fucking stories in the media about why the Cavaliers should trade him right now. Welcome to Fear the Fro. Shot blocked by Mobley. Holy Mobley. Donovan Mitchell is 8 for 8 from downtown. Darius Garland hit it from Euclid. A Cleveland Cavalier podcast. What do we need to add? What do we need to give coach? The game has come down to space and opportunity. We address that. Hosted by the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Yeah, his name is Bob Schmidt. Bob, Bob Schmidt. Schmidt. Spectacular talent. That guy is a legend. Got at the buzzer! Okay, thank you for joining me. Listen, Friday sucked balls. There's really no way to sugarcoat it. You find out your all-star caliber point guard is out for four to six weeks, probably till sometime in February, and then within 45 minutes, you find out that your front court linchpin is out for even longer, six to eight weeks. Now, the Garland news hit me hard, but I would be lying if I said that I wasn't at least somewhat excited by the silver linings, which was that an extended absence for Garland meant that in this season, where some tough decisions have to be made by Donovan Mitchell and by this franchise, that we were going to see how this team would look with just one of the star guards in place. Plus, more importantly, it would give us an extended look at the depth that had been buried due to the high minutes that both Donovan and Darius command. The depth that everybody has wanted to see in Craig Porter Jr., Sam Merrill, who, while we may not have been sitting there saying, oh, damn it, we need to get more Merrill, Merrill with more minutes seems like a different Merrill. Merrill, who can get into a rhythm, seems like a completely different player, and he is finding a comfort level and a confidence with all these extra shots that can be taken, which has proven very encouraging in these last two victories for the Cavaliers. And, of course, Isaac Okoro and Dean Wade. Those, that trio that I just mentioned, and to a lesser extent, Craig Porter Jr., but that trio of Merrill, Wade, and Okoro have all stepped up in these two games and looked like they're capable of providing much more than we ask of them. And even to a lesser extent, I realize there was foul trouble against the Rockets, but Jared Allen will be pressed into the same situation. Now, I was coping. I was rationalizing. I was bargaining. I was doing all those stages of grief with a Darius Garland move, and then just 45 minutes later, I found out Evan Mobley's out. This is far more damning for the hopes of this Cleveland Cavalier team as we push towards some sort of decent playoff seating here, ideally. I'm knocking on wood. Because for as much as I love Jared Allen, and I love that he has an opportunity to prove what he's capable of in a situation where he is the focal point of the front court, I certainly don't love a situation where our front court depth consists of Jared Allen, Dean Wade, and Tristan Thompson. Tristan has been a revelation in the minutes that he's played this season, delivering far more than I think any of us expected. But do I want to bank on that for 25 minutes a night? Ideally, no. Because when a guy's 
contributions are so predicated on energy and hustle, I don't want a, an old 32-year-old Tristan Thompson, by comparison to the rest of this roster, to be taxed too heavily. Now, we don't have the luxury of making those decisions, perhaps, if Jared Allen finds himself in foul trouble like he did against the Rockets. But fortunately, Dean Wade has been playing larger than his stature, had a couple of blocks last night or two nights ago, whenever you're listening to this podcast, and has been shooting very well and very confidently. But we'll get more into the specifics of what we've seen in these two games since these injuries hit. I cannot blow over my irritation, though, of the discourse that has taken place since then. Because in, in minutes, or at the very least hours after these injuries were announced, the discourse shifted from, oh, shit, that sucks for the Cavs, to the following. What's the argument, really, for the Cavs to keep him till the summer? None of us think he's going to resign there, going to extend there, right? Are you waiting to rip the Band-Aid off of making a move for an extra few months for what? The 25% chance of them winning a playoff series? That's Tim Bontemps on the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhurst. And he is just one of the many media members who speculated on if the Cavaliers should trade Donovan Mitchell right now. Now, I saw it amongst the panic bros on Cleveland Cavs Twitter. The, oh, well, we got a tank. We have our first-round draft pick. It's the only time we do for the next several years, so we got to trade Mitchell and just suck intentionally. Mind you, we didn't lose Garland and Mobley for the whole season. We lost them for two months, and some people are so used to wallowing in misery that they're racing to do it now when the season is far from over. I'm not going to try to convince you that the news we got on Friday was good. Obviously, it's not. And two wins does not mean that it will be easy to accumulate wins. We've got a good stretch coming up. This homestand, this four-game homestand, and the opponents we have ahead of us, it is a much easier second half of December than it was. I really mushed my way through that word. It's a much easier second half of December than it was in the first half. But still, we made this trade knowing we had three years at a minimum. Why are there so many people eager to short-circuit that when there's nobody who can force our hand except ourselves? Shut off the outside noise. Because the people who are talking about these trades, they don't want Donovan Mitchell to remain in Cleveland. If you're a content creator, talking about trades and movement is good for business. You want shit to happen. But again, just listen to this section of Bontemps' insistence that the Cavs should trade Donovan Mitchell now. Are you waiting to rip the Band-Aid off of making a move for what? The 25% chance of them winning a playoff series? Is that a serious question? The answer is yes. We're in Cleveland. They have not won a first-round series without the greatest player of all time since the last century. We may never win a championship with this core, but why the fuck wouldn't you at least want to see how high the ceiling is? I think you would find that I'm one of those people who is more in the camp of, well, second place is just first loser. But on this specific subject, even a Cavs team that doesn't win a title with this core, I think is far better set up for long-term success if they don't fire sale Donovan Mitchell because two unrelated players got hurt for a couple of months. An organization that preaches process and patience and so on and so forth, they cannot operate that way. We can absolutely lose Donovan Mitchell at the end of this contract. I'm not trying to convince you that that's not happening. What I'm trying to dissuade you of is this notion 
that there's much more to be gained by trading him right now than there is in the summer because that's fucking foolish. It's not when we trade Donovan Mitchell. It's if we trade Donovan Mitchell, who would bid to acquire his services because they believe that he would stay. And that group of teams likely doesn't change at all, whether it's this season or next season. There's two locations you consistently hear spoken of with Donovan Mitchell, New York City or Miami. All two or three of those teams will likely bid no matter when he's made available because it's much easier to get him into your salary cap via trade than it is carving out space for him to walk in as an unrestricted free agent. They will need our help. Do not underestimate how important that is. Now, to convince yourself that we have to pull the trigger now or we'll get a vastly worse return, you have to believe that somehow the market for people that Donovan Mitchell will go to changes. And what have we seen that would lead you to believe that? Has Miami acquired anyone or been linked to anybody? Have the Knicks acquired anybody or been linked to anyone? The other names that were being bandied about for them, Giannis, Joel Embiid, well, one guy extended with the Bucks, and the other is on a team that's playing great basketball. Do we think those are realistic opportunities? No. What about Carl Anthony Towns? Do you think he's getting shopped? No. The market for this man is limited to teams who believe that he will sign a next contract with them. It's not about a year versus a year and a half of Donovan Mitchell on this contract. It's about we want to get him into our salary cap structure because we couldn't just bring him in with cap space in a year and a half, and we want to do that knowing that he's going to sign a long-term deal. And anyone who tries to tell you otherwise just loves trades because logically that does not make sense. You can't sit here and say, well, the Cavs should trade Donovan Mitchell because why is it worth it for 25% chance of winning one round of playoffs? Well, why would it be worth it for somebody to give more for a half season and what will likely still just be an early playoff exit? Do we think Donovan Mitchell dropped onto the Knicks, wins them a title right now? No. Do we think that with Brooklyn? Fuck no. Miami? Maybe. Okay, I'd be more open to that idea that they should pay more right now. But again, if they're going to do that, why wouldn't they still do it in the summer? Bill Simmons himself said it's an open secret Donovan Mitchell is leaving. If anything diminished the return the Cavs could get, it's already happened. If people truly believe Donovan Mitchell is playing out the string and will walk away if and when he hits unrestricted free agency, well then, bad news, Cavs fans. The deals are already going to suck. So if you're that self-loathing that you want to lean into that belief that, well, they must be right, they have big national podcasts. He would never come back here despite all the nice things he said and his seeming professionalism. You're welcome to believe that. But I still believe, even if we both accept that, you and I, that a much more fun way to experience the remainder of Donovan Mitchell's time here is to try to fucking win. Just look around the league. Look how much winning can change a narrative. Carl Anthony Towns is going to be traded. Now the Timberwolves are one of the best teams in the Western Conference. James Harden. I, I mean, I was part of this narrative. I didn't believe for a second that shit would work with the Clippers. And he's fucking balling. He's shooting over 70% true shooting percentage during this massive winning stretch that they're on. Winning can change a ton of things. And I get why it would be upsetting to you that he hasn't extended already. But I would remind you, just look back to this past offseason. 
Giannis said some things, made some very pointed messages about how winning was important to him, and he wanted to be somewhere that was focused on winning. Now, of course, plenty of people said he was paving the way from a PR standpoint to leave Milwaukee. What happened next? They went out and traded for Dame Lillard. He immediately extended. Giannis kept his options open to keep the pressure on the front office. And you guys know better than this. You live this with LeBron James and his constant one-and-one deals. Sometimes the correct basketball decision happens to be the one that makes the fan base uncomfortable. It's an intelligent basketball decision for Donovan Mitchell to not commit to someone before he knows that this front office is truly willing to go through the process. But here's the thing. If Donovan Mitchell chose to stay here, it's not because he has ties to this city. It's because he would think that's his best chance to win. And if we're the type of front office that would trade a guy because of a couple of fairly short-term injuries to our other players, well, then we don't fucking deserve him. Because those aren't the actions of a team that wants to win. Those are the actions of a team so crippled by the memories of losing LeBron James that now they act prematurely to protect themselves against the worst-case scenario. And that's a fucking loser mentality. I would want to know, okay, are they the type that will throw in the towel and trade me at the first goddamn sign of adversity? And some of you advocating for that should be ashamed of yourselves. I hope you get coal in your stockings. I hope somebody shits in a box, wraps it up, and leaves it on your front porch. But it doesn't stop there, because what begins with these fucking trade rumors quickly spirals out of control to the most asinine trade suggestions you could possibly conceive. Did we talk about Draymond Green straight up for Jared Allen? Just straight up. Just the straight up trade. I was trying to think who would say no to that. And I took a while. I, I don't even know. I think Golden State just because of the Curry piece. I don't think Curry wants Draymond traded, but I also don't know. He thinks Golden State would be the one to say no. Guys, I am a dumb man. Dumb. And I am also a Cavalier fan. So, of course, I probably value my guys more than the guys on other rosters. Dumb! I am completely open to that idea. But Bill Simmons said the reason that the Cavaliers need Draymond is because they lack a defensive identity. That is correct. The Cleveland Cavaliers, the best-ranked defense last season, uh, top 10 defense this year, top 5 defense over their last 10 games, who just happens to be led by the third-place finisher for Defensive Player of the Year. They're the team that lacks a defensive identity. And the solution to that is to trade a guy who's arguably a top five defensive center in the NBA and arguably a better defender at present than the mid-30-something Draymond Green that would be coming back. The fact I haven't even used the fact that I hate his fucking guts to tear apart this suggestion should tell you how terrible it is. I want to give you one other thing here, which is just perhaps an alternative viewpoint of things. Now let's say we do fail and we pull the plug on this whole experiment and we trade Donovan Mitchell because he won't sign a long-term extension and he's no longer part of the Cavs. The nice thing is we'll never know what the offers were in season because it will have passed and we will have played out the string and we will have tried. And they say the things that you regret in life are the things that you don't do and the chances that you don't take. Ask yourself, honestly, what are you more likely to regret? Trading away the goddamn kitchen sink for a one-year experiment with a guy and then just inevitably giving up because you fear the worst, or trading a guy six months later and maybe getting back 
a slightly worse package. Do you think five years from now, if we're in the middle of another rebuild, you're going to be saying, fuck, if only we had squeezed Royce O'Neal or Duncan Robinson out of a deal, but we waited six months more. Or five years from now, are you going to be wondering, I wonder what that team could have done if we allowed them to try to go into the playoffs fully healthy with an actual bench. Now, I am going to give you a glimpse into my professional life because I need some sort of transition between this talk and the conversation about what we actually witnessed in the last two games. So what I'm going to play for you is a rejected holiday promo I created for my job. This time of year, several of my brethren fall prey to holiday layoffs, which might have possibly influenced the following promo, which did not make it to air, but I wanted to make it to your ears. So here it is. Welcome one and all, it's that time of year where we tell you we are grateful that you have come here. This is great sports talk, but if you didn't come, they would lay off everyone and I would buy a gun. Hey! We talk sports, you love sports, thank you everyone. This is my entire life! I've given my whole life to you! We do sports, you love sports, you can never leave. I have nothing to live for! So please do not test me! The guy's a psycho. Okay, so we back. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the games. Now, based on my interactions with all of you who listen to this podcast, Bob at FroPod.com, I know your diehards who live and breathe the Cavs, and most of you watch all the games as well. So I think I can confidently say that many of you felt the same way I did in the aftermath of the Garland and Mobley news, which is, fuck, that sucks. But... How many of us have sat here opining about Craig Porter Jr. not getting enough minutes or Dean Wade playing good basketball as of late but having a fairly limited role simply because there are two minutes monsters in front of him? That has been the problem with having these four stars. Everybody beneath that level has a fairly small role. And now there's a giant vacuum created by losing two of your best three players and the shot attempts that they take up on a game-to-game basis. So vaulted into a much weightier position in the rotation is Dean Wade and Isaac Okoro, who have ascended to starter status and are playing excellent basketball. And now, out of nowhere, Sam Merrill with a career game, 19 points, five three-pointers, some huge, huge baskets, including one in overtime where he got a half-court pass from Donovan Mitchell that he pulled up immediately while Isaac Okoro deftly set a very subtle screen just to give him enough space to knock down a basket, and he was heroic. That's on the heels of a Hawks game in which he ripped off nine points in the second quarter on three triples and in limited minutes gave us a glimpse of what was to come in the Rockets game that we just saw. Now, who knows what lies ahead? I would assume he's not going to score nearly 20 points every single game, but I would also assume that his minutes are going to continue to trend up. For those of you who didn't hear his post-game press conference, I was incredibly impressed. It's not necessarily a confidence thing. Like, like I said, I've got all the confidence in the world, but there's a certain comfort that comes from playing more and more and you know, get an idea of what I can do and cannot get away with at this level. I love that. And I think that's one of my favorite things about this injury situation. Darius's mere existence 
essentially was going to prevent that from being possible. We have a glut of smaller guards. So as great as Merrill is shooting, Darius brings so much more to the game. In a situation where he's healthy, Merrill may never get the opportunity to play himself into a rhythm. But this window now can give him the confidence and the comfort that he may need to be able to do these same things in a more limited role. Because when guys only log spot minutes, too many times these guys on the fringe of the roster end up playing not to make mistakes. And that's not what we need from a guy who has a fairly defined skill in Sam Merrill. We need him to do exactly what he came in there to do, which is put him up. I often find myself, you know, because I I watch all the basketball obsessively, the summer league and the preseason and stuff, and you see these performances, like what Sam did in the summer league, and you just wonder, okay, What if he came into the game and we allowed him to play the exact same way that he played in summer league? And I'm talking about leash. Like, obviously, the style he plays is the style he plays. But so many times when a guy gets plopped in, you see him playing to avoid mistakes. You see him playing to avoid getting a quick hook. And sometimes it takes away from their game. And Sam Merrill, because of this Garland injury and because of this Mobley injury, actually has got to log minutes where he truly has the freedom to shoot with the same reckless abandon and confidence that he did in summer league. And I can't wait to see how much this can work on a game-to-game basis. Now, maybe guys will start to defend him differently as he becomes more aggressive in the offense. Maybe he's getting better looks now because guys weren't ready for him to come in and be this willing to shoot. It could change, sure. But this is exactly the type of thing that I would want to see because so many times these guys between 10 and 15 on the roster, you wonder, would they have done more with their career if they ever actually got the opportunity? Because the league is full of guys who can play. It just takes a chance to be able to prove it. Sam has been fighting for that. So it is so rewarding to watch him do this. And I thought he had some important things to say. Now, this comment, I'm not playing it for you because of – really tying it to Sam here. I think it's a good thing to listen to and then remind yourself that that applies to Imani Bates as well. The G League was huge for me. You know, the G League's not not a perfect league player-wise, but, like, there's a lot of great athletes. So you're taking contested threes and um, taking a lot of, you know, big-time shots late in games and whatnot. So I can certainly lean on that experience. I love that Sam makes the distinction that, The G League is useful in the sense that it allows you to put up those kind of high-pressure shots. And while it may not be NBA guys, you're competing against NBA-level athletes. And that's the thing with Amani. Yeah, it'd be great to see him in this crucible against the competition that ultimately, if he is to succeed, he's going to face. But for him to get up the reps, because he clearly has a slower lease than Sam Merrill. His size profile makes up for a lot of it. But it will be nice for him to be well-practiced in how to get to the spots where he's the most effective, even against G League caliber players, before he's thrown right into the fire here. Because I think that's what we felt so good about it in Craig Porter Jr., is that from the moment he was dropped out there on the floor, it seemed like he was immediately comfortable playing amongst NBA players. I don't think the same can be said for Merrill's earlier minutes this season. I think these last two games, he's looked very comfortable. But I think some of that is simply because he knows he has a longer leash and it has allowed him to play that way. My hope is that over these next two months, he puts together such a solid stretch of basketball that even when he's reduced to a more limited role, when he does come in, he'll play as freely and as confidently 
as he's looked these last two games. Now I want to move on to Isaac Okoro because Isaac too is a man who essentially plays to what the team asks of him. And over these last couple games, we've seen a more concerted effort to initiate offense and to crash the glass. And Isaac Okoro too has been very good. Basically from whenever we drafted him, we were hoping we'd be able to slot him in as a three, but I think we can all acknowledge Isaac's more natural position is the two guard. So being able to give him extended minutes there feels great. And both he and Sam Merrill, I thought in a very important sequence in the game versus the Rockets and a testament to their basketball IQ was that late in the game, Alpi Shangun found himself in foul trouble in two late possessions. We saw Sam Merrill get to the rim and go up against Shangun basically daring him to challenge the ball, and he got a bucket on a left-handed layup driving across the middle of the lane. And then Isaac Okoro did the very same thing. Those guys knew they had an advantage in that situation and that Shangun couldn't contest as much as he might like to in fear of fouling out of that game, and they took advantage of it. And to see that from two guys who were essentially bit pieces just a week ago is fantastic. Then there's Dean Wade who has come out early in games and looked aggressive right out of the gate. Now, his his second halves haven't been as loud as his first halves, perhaps, but Dean Wade has been playing excellent ball from defense to helping on the glass to a couple of blocked shots last game and the triples, six triples over his last two games. Dean Wade has looked incredible too. So there's a lot of things to feel very positively about because these same guys I'm mentioning are are the ones who everybody wanted to bury because Craig Porter Jr. and Amani weren't playing. And now you're seeing their value when they're given longer leashes. And I think you have to credit JB for going to the guys that he did because we're seeing why he has the trust in them. These guys have stepped up, and they've filled nearly impossible voids over these last two games with Garland and Mobley out. Now, it may not always be that easy, but I definitely like the chances of this Cavalier squad, given the contributions we've got from so many guys who are the guys who fall into that category of one game they show up, one game they don't. And yet over these last two games, very good Isaac Okoro, very good Dean Wade, very good Sam Merrill, and one amazing game of Jared Allen, and then one foul-prone game. That's my biggest concern, I guess, as we move forward. I don't think these last two games have been particularly difficult front courts to match up against from a defensive standpoint. And yet, in one of the games, Shen Goon, who is a little bit grifty, he managed to get Jared Allen in foul trouble along with some of the other guys. I mean, Jared Allen, the one where Dylan Brooks stepped on his foot, that was just horrible luck and a call that I wish wasn't made. Uh, but his final foul of the five that he got was a terrible contest on his part that was absolutely going to be a foul. And credit to Jeff Green. Jesus Christ, that guy's still going. Watching that game, I came away feeling a few different things. Uh, One of those was that Dylan Brooks tries to manhandle Donovan Mitchell. Every dead ball, he's just grabbing him and holding him. And And the refs just let it go. It's fucking annoying. And that play where they called... An, an intentional foul, essentially, against Aaron Holiday on Tristan Thompson when, before it even happened, Dylan Brooks was just mugging Donovan Mitchell. That was annoying. Between that interpretation and the one where Jared Allen got hit in the face by Shengun, then dragged him down, 
And somehow the foul was called on Isaac. I just don't understand what the refs are seeing in some of these situations. Now, that one worked out in our favor. It was one less foul against Jared Allen. But really, what it should have been was an offensive foul against Shengun for hitting Jared Allen in the face. And Max Struess got hit in the face, too, that game. I, anyway, I didn't mean to turn this into a referee thing. The thing I would say is I feel great after these first two games because the vo- guys sucked into the vacuum of minutes created by Darius Garland and Evan Mobley. Well, so far, they have shined brilliantly. Craig Porter Jr., I realize it's just 24 minutes over the last two games, and he's, he's not putting up tons of shots, but I do love his aggression forcing the action to the rim and using his body to dislodge guys. Even when he's missed, he's created a couple offensive rebound opportunities just by the fact that he dislodged the defender. And when the misses happened, other guys were in place to try to gather them in. And I think that's something that I've enjoyed very much about both him and Isaac Okoro is that they see Isaac seems to be even more comfortable attacking the rim and using his body to try to force contact, get to the line, or finish around the rim this season. And with a bigger opportunity to showcase that skill offensively, Isaac is finding a balance between attacking and passing that he hasn't shown in past seasons. So I'm hopeful that this Utah game will be a victorious effort by the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, I may do another podcast this week, but I'm not totally sure. It may happen when I'm back in my home studio. I'm traveling. I came out to watch the Buffalo Bills fight for their playoff lives. Now, I realize, as Browns fans, most of you, you may think that uh, the Bills' success is something that you don't want to happen. I would suggest that we're Lake Erie bros and that we should support one another. But if you don't, I understand, so long as you support my beloved Cleveland Cavaliers. That's the most important thing. So Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to everyone, in case I don't talk to you before then. But uh, Oh, and also congratulations to Mac Perry. That man, I mean, I didn't do a podcast for the better part of this week since I've been traveling and dealing with, you know, a lot of, a lot of work, office party, blah, 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 all that shit. Uh, and meanwhile, Mac Perry, uh, his wife has a baby. He's in the hospital, and he's doing a post-game video about the Cleveland Cavaliers. That man is putting in work. Chase down boys putting in work. Wine and gold talk boys putting in work. Me, I'm in holiday mode. But hey, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, all that shit. Thank you for everybody who's joined the Fear of the Fro podcast this year. All the ratings, all the reviews. We are creeping up towards 100 on Spotify, towards 50 on the uh, Apple podcast section. So everybody who's done those things, I'm grateful for you. I'm going to leave you with this random noise that Dylan Brooks made while flopping during the game against the Cavaliers. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.